0: Well, we're picking back up in Acts 18. I'm going to hope to go through it today, but we will see what happens. What we're going to see here today in Acts 18 is what we see similarly through all the chapters we've been through in Acts when it comes to Paul's missionaries' journeys. First, he goes to the Jews in the synagogue. He reasons with them. People either recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, or and when that happens, the result is usually they come in two ways. One is those who are interested want to hear more. And those who are offended or threatened by Paul's teaching and uh, give him trouble and usually run him out of town. We're going to see that today as well. We're going to see some individuals that stand out and we'll see that their process or traits of evangelizing are applicable for us today. We're also going to look at a phrase that's been used multiple times within the New Testament that happens for those who reject the Word of God. But I'm going to start out with the first two verses talking about historical context. Okay, Uh, so let's start there, Acts 1 and 2. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Cornith, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and Paul went to see them. Now, I wanted to pause here a moment as this statement is in the Bible as one of those who refute the many who say that the Bible is just fictional. The incident that is spoken of here of the Jews being run out of Rome is also found in the historical writings of Suetonius in his scroll, The Life of Claudius. Now, this guy, Suetonius was a Roman historian who's credited with at least 20 books. Some of those titles were Roman laws, Roman customs, lives of Roman kings, lives of poets, of historians and philosophers. And here's one. For all you uh, who are reality TV fans, it would make an interesting read. Lives of Famous Prostitutes. There you go. That was one of his claims to fame. But the one work we're interested in today was the Lives of the Twelve Caesars, where inside that historical document of this historian of the time, we read about this account that is spoken of here in the Bible. It says, He, that being Claudius, expelled the Jews from Rome, as they were making continual insurrections under their leader, Christus. Now, I want to point that historical point out. They were run out out of Rome by Caesar because there's many proponents of the Bible who, like I say, always claim that the Bible is just a book of fiction. There's one who was just in the news here in January. Her name is Joyce Carol Oates. She has written 58 novels. She's a great novelist, uh, but she is an avowed atheist, She made statements like, it's always been something of a mystery to me that intelligent educated men and women, as well as uneducated, can have faith in an invisible and a non-existent God. Here just in January 11th, she says, the Bible is fertile ground for hypocrisy, and when this podcaster, Sam Adler, suggested that she needed to read the Bible before she made these declarations, she said... The Bible, as you call it, is a work of fiction, or rather an anthology of fictions. Yet, once again, we see here that it is proven time and time again to be historical fact. Amen? 1 Corinthians 2.13 says, And we impart things in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, as much as I wish there was a better way to explain the things to God, uh, of God, to protagonists, there just is not. Because it's basically, you don't know what you don't know, and you're not going to understand spiritual things until you allow the Holy Spirit to come in and reside within you. Amen? Verse 3, and because that being Paul was made of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked... For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Now here's the other comment. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Amen. Here again, we see now as then, uh, he was reviled. Now don't be mistaken, the reception of the word of God was not just misunderstood when Paul did this, or, or taken to something, oh, let me consider that, let me ponder it, I'll think about it. No, it was outright rejected in a forceful and vocal manner. So what does he say he did? He shook out his garments as he left. You see, the people at that time would have completely understood what that means. See, for us it might have been, how do you do that now? When your mom says something to you, anyone hear anyone? speak to the hand, speak to the hand, right? That was Paul, he was shaking out his garments. Now there's another passage that comes that's very similar to that, it's all through the Bible. And it says, they shook off the dust from their feet against them. And uh, Acts 13, 51 says, and whoever shall not receive you or hear your words... Shake off the dust of your feet when you depart. And truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And in Luke, it says that they don't receive you when you leave them. Shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. We get this impression that even the dust is going to testify against you uh, on the day of that court. Remember when Jesus showed up in Jerusalem and they told him, Uh, Quiet your disciples. He said, if I did, even the rocks would cry out. Same thing. Even the dust is going to testify against you on that day. On a side note, when the Jews were coming back in their homeland, you know, they had this custom. You know, when you're coming um, into Florida from Georgia and there's a big sign that says, welcome to Florida. They didn't have that big sign, but they knew where their boundaries was. So when the Jews were coming out of Samaria back into the Holy Land, they would basically, they would literally stop and sit on this rock, and they would take their sandals off, and they would beat the dust out over here, and then they'd turn around, and they'd put their sandals back on when they walked into the Holy Land, so they didn't bring anything unholy with them. So when he said, look, shake the dust off your sandals, for those who reject the Word of God, they knew what he was saying, and it wasn't a good thing. Verse 7 says, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, now, now catch this, Titus' house was next door to the synagogue. That's like, you know, right over there. Like if this was the synagogue, that house right there would have been Titus's house. It's probably what we would call today an early church split. One was listening to the word of God. One was choosing to follow religion. You know, we're saddened when we hear about church splits, but the ones we're hearing about today are a good thing. Just this last year, 4,200 Methodists have come out of the Methodist denomination and started the global Methodists, which are preaching and teaching, as my grandmother says, the Word of God and the blood of Christ, okay? And they're doing that because the other churches choose not to follow the Bible, but choose to follow the things of the world. We saw that happen to the Anglicans and the Episcopals as well. Verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed him and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. That's comforting to know that the Lord knows who you are, amen? And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. You know, one of the things I tell people when they're getting baptized is that here's the thing. Right now, you're you're this human being walking on the earth, right? And uh, you're either with the Lord or you're not. But as soon as you go in those waters, you get what I call a spiritual tattoo. And so from now on, both your enemy and the angels of heaven, when they look at you, they know there's no question whatsoever. You are now a child of the living God. Amen? Amen? You have put on the uniform. You have chosen a side. And that's who it is. That's what God says. When I look down, he says, there's many of my people in that town. Paul, do not be afraid. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God. This Titus Justice actions are a good example of a different kind of thing we talk about when we look at a difference between a decision for Christ and a commitment to Christ. Titus said here, use my house as your place to teach and worship. How many of us, upon professing Christ, would be willing to go, come on over to my house. You can use my house as a Bible study. Or you can use my house as a church and then deal with all the persecution associated with it. I want you to just think about right now who your neighbors are. What if every Sunday... 20 or 25 cars started pulling up in your yard to come and have a home church service in your home. How many of your neighbors would give you a hard time? Probably a number of them, correct? Especially if you lived in an HOA. Now we've spoken about the difference between commitment and decision. Does anywhere in the Bible tell us we're supposed to make decision makers of Christ? No, what's it tell us we're to do? Make disciples of Christ. That's right. So what is a disciple? I can make a decision. You can make a decision. But that's not the same thing as a commitment. We make a decision on who we're going to date. Correct? Am I correct? Right? That you make a decision. But you make a commitment on who you are going to marry. Do you see the difference? Okay? Paul stayed and taught so that those who had made a decision could turn that decision into a commitment. Because you need to build relationships. Relationships between those who know the word and those who do not. Relationships between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. A decision can be made in a moment. A commitment requires time, effort, and discipline. Amen? One quote on discipline states, No horse gets anywhere until it's harnessed. No steam or gas drives anything until it's confined. Niagara Fall never turns anything into light until it's tunneled. No life ever does great things until it is focused, dedicated, and disciplined. Look over to your neighbor on your right and say, you need to be disciplined. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, exactly. How true is that? Now we think of a marriage commitment as two people. But in a biblical marriage, okay, there are four. There's the groom, the bride, Christ, and the church. When a believer makes a decision for Christ, he becomes one of those four needed in the commitment. The second person is Jesus, and he has the responsibility to get to know Jesus. So he has to have discipline to do that, to read the word, to attend Bible study, to attend a worship service. And all those involve the third person of the commitment, the family of God. And the family of God needs to be committed to helping you become a disciple. When we dedicate babies or when we baptize children, we, as a body of believers, are basically saying, we are going to help raise your child in the ways of the Lord. Amen? Because we do that as a family. Last week, we saw Tom, who was baptized, who was recently baptized, and Chad and Stephanie. Stephanie have made a commitment to continue to disciple Tom through his Christian walk. Amen? That's what you do. You've got to come alongside somebody. You've got to invest in them. Verse 12 says, But when Galileo proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's just a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be the judge of such things. And he drove him out of the tribunal. Now, I love this. And they, that being the Jews, all see Sosthenes, who was the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galo paid no attention to any of this. My gosh, how sad is that on both sides? When Christians are persecuted for their faith and the government stands aside and does nothing, that happens more than often than we think. We're seeing it now continuously. Statistics from the Pew Research Center shows that as of 2018, that Christianity is persecuted in more countries around the world than any other religion. Christians account for 31% of the world's populations, and they face harassment in 145 countries. In 2023, the highest rate of persecution was recorded in Asia, two out of five Christians, Africa, one out of five, followed by the... Latin America, 1 in 16. Now here's a couple of statistics you might find interesting. What do you think the fastest growing religion is? Anybody? Islam. Islam, fastest growing religion as of 2023. Where is Christianity declining the most? Western Europe and North America. Right here in our own hometown. Christianity is declining more, and the Islamic faith is growing. Why? Because preachers quit preaching the word and teaching the blood. Instead, they are preaching what their itching ears want to hear and going with the sway of politics. Mm. By the way, how many people here live in Osceola County? Mm, By the way, your representative is now a Democrat because the lady that Lacey was talking about lost by 600 votes. Kind of makes you wonder if you went down Tuesday and voted. Mm. There may be a day when this church falls to the ways of the world, but it's not going to be on my watch. Amen. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leaves of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila at Centuria. And he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. That's something you don't hear about today, do you? Jeez, you can't hardly even get somebody to shake your hand and give you your word. Mm. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they had asked him to stay longer, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I'll return if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. And we had landed at Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church and then came down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, to the region of Galatia and Perga, strengthening all the disciples. Amen. Again, an example of discipleship. He didn't just let them make decisions. He went back from town to town, church to church, helping them teach, helping them understand, answering the hard questions, giving them the help that they needed. 24, now a a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man competent in the scriptures he had been instructed of the way of the lord and being fervent in spirit he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning jesus though he knew only the baptism of john he began to speak boldly in the synagogue and when priscilla and aquila heard him they took him aside and explained to him the way of the lord more accurately and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him And when he arrived, he greatly helped those through the grace he had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by Scripture that the Christ was Jesus. Amen. So here in this last part of the text, I wanted to point out, we encounter a man who only knows a little or less than the full things of Jesus Christ. Yet what he knows, he shares. That should be an encouragement to all of us. Because how often do we say, well, we're kind of scared to you know, evangelize or Christ or say anything about it because somebody will ask us a question. Can I get a witness of that? Amen. You don't know all the answers. You never will. You know, that's why we have Ryan. It's called call a pastor. You know? You can call Neil. You can call anybody. You can even Google the answer. You know? As a matter of fact, those who have first come to Christ and know very little or just their salvation are oftentimes the best at evangelizing for Christ. Amen? Because it's hard to hide the reality of their decision that has become a commitment. I mean, think about that a minute. When you first came to know Jesus Christ, and you said yes, were you on fire for the Lord? Did you feel like you had to tell somebody? I did. Hmm. You became eager, enthusiastic, passionate about speaking. Here in the synagogue, where he was speaking about Jesus, you could think of it in two ways. One is when his eyes were open, he went to his family so they could have their eyes opened as well. I remember when I first came to the Lord, I shortly afterwards came to the realization that my family did not know Jesus either. And that, my friends, scared me. It scared me because upon knowing the truth of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ... You can't help but have a burning sensation to tell those that you love, especially when you realize the cost of not knowing. Amen? Hmm. So Apollo goes to the family to tell them. The second way we can look at it as he went to testify Jesus was his workplace because he was an educated man. When we dig into Apollos, we find out he was like Paul, educated, well-equipped, powerfully, to refute the Jews showing them the scriptures. Now I want to point this out because he used a language he knew to testify to others who spoke his language. And I want to give you a different example, Priscilla and Aquila, right? So Priscilla and Aquila, what were they? Tent makers, right? So, did it say, can you find anywhere in the Bible and in Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned multiple times, anywhere in the Bible where they went to the synagogue to proclaim their faith? No. But yet they traveled with Paul, they evangelized with Paul, they're mentioned multiple times. They even took this guy who was a scholar, right, a college boy basically, and said, hey, look, you're on the right track, let me fill in what you don't know about Jesus. So they were intelligent people, but what I want to point out was this. He went to where he needed to be and spoke the language that those who would understand it, the legal language, okay, that he spoke, that others who spoke this lingual language would understand. Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers, so they probably evangelized to blue-collar people, the people that would come in and sell skins, that would sell fabric, that would sell uh, the poles, uh, whatever. All those kind of things, those people would come in, and they would speak and teach them because they spoke their language. Amen? When I was in a when I was in, um, working in the corporate world, <clears throat> a lot of the guys that were in my groups were what they call engineering specialists. Okay? That means they were basically got an engineering title the old-fashioned way. They earned it. Okay? They worked their way up from the ground. They weren't particularly college boys, and, but what they lacked was the ability to speak the language that needed to be done when you were in corporate meetings. So part of my job was to teach them the verbiage, the vernacular that needed to be said when you were in those meetings so that they would recognize what you were saying. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Different groups of people speak in different ways. Do they speak the same way in the cow pens, Jamie? No, oh, he had to run, that's right. But he used to tell me, he goes, he came to me one day, he was early in his walk with Christ, and he says, Pastor, it's okay if I swear when I'm in a cow pen, right? I mean, like, well, Jamie, I'd like to tell you no, but I'm pretty sure, I haven't found it in the Bible yet, but I'm pretty sure when you work on an automobile, it's okay, so. <laughs> but you're speaking a different language, okay? You're speaking the language of the people that you're around, and, and that's where you are, and so that's when you testify. Don't think that you have to come up here, okay, and preach to be a witness for Jesus Christ, You just need to be able to be a witness where you live, where you work. One of the best ways to do that is to have a Bible, okay, at your workplace. Have it on your desk. If your workplace is a truck, have it in your truck, okay? Why? Because sooner or later, someone's going to ask you if you are a believer. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I want to end with this little short story. It's by Louis Palau, a huge uh, international evangelist. This is what he says. My family and team have gone to over 60 countries declaring the glory of God. When I first went to the Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist majority nations, I trembled to do the right thing for the glory of God. But I talked to a Hindu guru years ago, and he said, Louis, don't ever use the Western style of arguing Trying to show your religion is better than mine. Or your Savior is superior. Just simply tell who Jesus is. Tell of his character. Tell what he's like. Let people do the comparing for themselves. He said that was some of the best advice I ever got. And I used it my entire life evangelizing in other countries. Verse 27 says, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples and welcomed him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those by grace who allowed. Amen. Father, I pray today that we too can be a help to those who need. And Father, I pray that we will be brave enough to share our faith in those places that you tell us to be, Lord, our work, our family, wherever it happens to be. And Lord, I thank you that those who have come before us and put these words down in this book so we can know for sure that it's historical fact, not just fiction. In Jesus Christ's name. Amen.